From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, September 17th. Today, I'm joined by Impact Alpha contributing editor Imogen Rose-Smith and fellow Roundtable regular David Bank to talk carbon lock-in, stranded assets, and yes, Harvard's endowment. Hi, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And hi, David. Hey, Brian. Hey, Imogen. Looking forward to digging into this topic with you both in just a moment. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. Move over SPACs. There's a new acronym in town. Here come the NACs. The New York Stock Exchange is seeking approval to bring natural asset companies, or NACs, to market. These companies would develop what are called payments for ecosystem services and raise capital in initial public offerings. Douglas Egger of Intrinsic Exchange Group lays it all out on Impact Alpha. Solugen raised $357 million to make chemicals with enzymes instead of oil. The chemicals industry is the third largest producer of carbon emissions. Solugen uses enzymes to convert sugar, air, and carbon dioxide into chemicals like hydrogen peroxide. This financing round valued Solugen at more than $1.8 billion. Small business finance in emerging markets is getting a tech upgrade. The COVID pandemic sent small businesses scrambling to digitize. Tech companies helping these corner stores and roadside stalls are collecting a trove of data. That data is opening up new channels for working capital, inventory financing, and other lending. In Kenya, market force helps retailers keep their shelves stocked. The data then goes to Pazesha, which connects the businesses to affordable lenders. The Nature Conservancy and Timberland Investment Group teamed up to scale forest conservation. The big conservation group is helping the big timber company set and meet sustainable goals on about a half million acres of forest lands. Disinformation is becoming a systemic risk. On this week's Capitalism Reimagined call, Sarah Murphy of the Shareholder Commons launched a campaign to press media companies, starting with Fox News, to commit to fair and responsible journalism. Let's take something like a media company putting out information or perhaps better said, disinformation and misinformation around climate change and around how that works. If someone holds that company in their portfolio, are those bullshit emissions any worse than greenhouse gas emissions? Possibly, right? Because they're contributing to an entire political environment that allows that kind of thing to continue that doesn't put into place the right checks and balances. And the employee ownership wave continues to crest. Investors Impact Engine and Mosaic back to worker ownership conversion at Zero Waste Recycling in Charlotte, North Carolina. More than 90% of Zero Waste employees are Black, Indigenous, and other people of color with low to middle incomes. Now it's time for this week's feature conversation, and we've got our roundtable regulars. Now, Imogen, your institutional impact column this week in Impact Alpha took on one of your favorite targets, oil pipelines. Haven't we killed those off already? They're like zombies, Brian. They keep coming back. Um, Now there is a new pipeline that is drawing focus from protesters, uh, Line 3 pipeline in Minnesota which, uh, like part of DAPL, is being funded by a Canadian company called Enrich. The majority of their business is building and operating pipelines. And who who backs them? 
Well, what's interesting is, is they have a large contingent of institutional investors amongst their shareholders, including many of the major Canadian pension plans, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, um, and other European institutional asset owners, many of whom you would typically think of as being ESG or at least ESG aware investors. All right, so you have so you have these big institutional investors who uh, have some ESG credibility, uh, and yet they're investing in this oil pipeline and bridge. So how do they get away with it? Well, one of the things that is striking is that Enridge, as a company, emits very low, a very low level of carbon. So if you look at it in terms of scope one and two carbon emissions, which is how most ESG models measure carbon. They have a pretty low carbon footprint and are on track to have zero carbon emissions by 2050. Of course, this fails to take into account the fact that a large percentage of their business is focused on building the high carbon economy, including getting tar sands out of, for example, Alberta, Canada, all the way into the U.S., which is exactly what the pipeline is doing. All right, so let me just get this straight here. You have a, a company that's claiming to make a, a net zero commitment because they technically don't emit a lot of carbon themselves, but their whole business model is providing the infrastructure for the flow of carbon-intensive assets, namely oil, right? Exactly, right? And they do have a small proportion of their businesses focused, that is focused on renewable but it's relatively speaking extremely extremely small and what you know is frustrating to me frankly and it's sort of the point of this article is not so much the sort of fuzzy maths around sort of carbon emissions which we've talked about before but this idea that they were continuing to build the high carbon infrastructure which we know that we're not going to be able to use and that it, that is coming at a cost of a renewable energy infrastructure that we should be building. And so why is that coming at the cost of a renewable energy infrastructure? Because in effect, the, these are you're comparing apples to apples, right? When I'm investing in an oil pipeline, I could as easily be investing in a wind farm, right? So, you know, Enbridge's shareholders could be pushing the company to do more in renewables rather than just sort of sitting back and letting them build pipelines. Or, in fact, they could be going out and financing those renewable investments themselves instead of continuing to sort of plow capital into this high-carbon infrastructure. And to be fair, you know, one of the big Canadian pension plans, by way of example, has done a deal where they bought, you know, a significant percentage of Enbridge's renewable portfolio for $1.7 billion. But we know that we need trillions of dollars in renewable energy infrastructure that we could be committing capital to. And instead, you know, we're building the L3 pipeline. David likes to talk about, you know, universal asset ownership and those kind of constructs and this idea that, oh, you know, investors are so big, they can't really help it. You know, oh, it's not really their fault that they're doing all these terrible things. Like, it is their fault right? Like they can make a conscious choice to say, no, I want my capital to be used in this direction, instead of doing something that is clearly 
a bad idea and that we know well, when we know that the economy needs to be moving in the opposite direction. Well, to be clear, the universal owners thesis um, is goes the opposite direction, which is that these big uh, institutional investors, like you say, these big pension funds, should be seeing that the risks and the impact of things like fossil fuel infrastructure is going to hurt their rest of their portfolio. They should be the most active ones you know, trying to pressure Enbridge through their, you know, shareholder engagement strategies to to not do projects like this. I mean, the International Energy Agency couldn't have been more clear the other, you know, a month or so ago when it said, you know, shut down all new fossil fuel investment, that it wasn't like some long-term plan. It was like there should be no more um, investment in fossil fuels. As you say, Imogen, it should all be t- directed towards the low-carbon infrastructure instead of the high-carbon infrastructure. So, um, um, you know, this is a perfect example, Brian, of you know the sort of how the the devil's in the details on all of these um, climate action plans that are going to be you know very much discussed in the next few months as we come up, uh, up to the the big COP uh, global climate summit. You know, as Imogen said, you're going to learn a lot about scope three emissions, which are the downstream sort of emissions you know caused by the users of your of your products. Or we're gonna you know we're gonna understand about you know what net zero commitments really mean. You know, and 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 which, which leaders, which political leaders are really have the guts to, to, to take on, you know, obviously entrenched lobbies, whether it's Alberta, you know, oil drillers or, or, or pipeline uh, uh, operators or others, um, and, and really, you know, leave it in the ground, as they say. But that's also my point, right? Like none of these discussions of like fossil fuel, fuel divestment or reduction are talking about like fossil fuel infrastructure. They're just saying, you know, we're no longer going to invest and the people who are taking the stuff out of the ground. You know, one of the things that I talk about in the article is this idea of carbon lock-in and that we're locking ourselves into 30 years of a high-carbon infrastructure, again, at the very moment when we we don't have 30 years to transition to a renewable economy. Those kind of conversations aren't really happening at the investor and allocator level. So Imogen, you know, when the music is playing, the argument goes, people should continue to dance. And right now the music still is playing and there's uh, no political will to shut down this pipeline. There's no uh, legal um, uh, ability to shut down this pipeline. And and so the uh, operating companies that are building this uh, pipeline, the company like en- Enbridge, is continuing to do so and their investors are backing them. And they're able to do this because they are technically skating the line of saying, well, our emissions are low in the building and operating of this pipeline, and they don't have to account for the scope three emissions of the actual oil that will be flowing through the pipeline in that. So wh- what is the the point of leverage here to, uh, to stop this new build out of these carbon lock-in uh, new infrastructure? I mean... <laughs> The answer to that, unfortunately, is very little, right? And I think that that's the frustrating point, right? So Harvard University just announced that it is going to be divesting its endowment from like fossil fuels, right? Which is symbolically hugely significant from the activist community for various reasons, not the least of which is that Harvard did not vote to um, divest from businesses, companies doing business with apartheid South Africa. But in terms of a meaningful discussion about what climate change means to investors and what climate change risk means to 
investment portfolios, it's pretty much meaningless. Um, and in some ways, it's kind of a distraction, right? Because if you really, because it's not talking about things like infrastructure, it's very, very narrowly focused on what it's talking about. And if you really believe that if any of these institutions truly believe that sort of the environmental crisis was at the level that we know it is, they would arguably be doing much more to proactively be a part of the transition instead of your point, continuing to dance until the music stops, right? And they're stuck between this sort of like wanting on the one hand to be like, oh yes, sure, climate change, yes, we know that's a problem. And sort of sticking to these, this old fashioned model of what it is to be, you know, an endowment investor. Well, there's an interesting thing that's come up with the with the divestment and and you know it's like the almost the whole thing has been flipped on its head. We had Michael O'Leary from Engine Number One on our uh, Agents of Impact call this week, and he made the point that you know some people say, hey, if there had been more investors still in Exxon for their vote last year on the directors, that maybe some of those d- divested shares voted for the insurgent directors might have, you know, elected that fourth director to, to, to the board. He made the, I think, very good point that, no, the, the divestment movement helped set the stage for the kind of battle that went on at Exxon and made it impossible or at least harder for the institutional investors not to vote for these new directors so that the activist movement and the divestment movement you know, as, as Jeremy Grantham has said, you know, the, the aim is really to make the oil companies and the fossil fuel companies, you know, pariahs that no sort of respectable investor would want to be associated with. And so I think, you know, the folks that are demonstrating in Minnesota and and and, and sitting in and, 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 and trying to block the pipeline, you know, serve to, you know, have us talk about this on this podcast. And that raises the question. And it means that that those Canadian investors have to answer a little bit more. And and, and at some level, you know, the the political mobilization really is key to then getting, you know, some kind of probably very bureaucratic um, uh, uh, permit or something revoked, um, whether it's a clean water permit or a environmental impact report or something with the Army Corps of Engineers, um, all of which are within, you know, the, the purview of the Biden administration to, to act on. And so I think there is a, a way in which it's basically, you know, raise up the visibility, make it make it untenable for institutional investors and get uh, regulators to do their job. But, but the point is, right, that it's not untenable for institutional investors, right? Institutional investors continue to invest in Exxon, and that would be the point of like how, and you, given that we know, given how, how crucial we know climate change is going to be to the economy, you would think that the thinking around this in terms of investment activity would be far more sophisticated than it currently is. And that includes making a choice about how you allocate your investment capital with regards to energy infrastructure. Do you think that Larry Fink at BlackRock and, and his people have been talking with Enbridge and encouraging them to, you know, get aligned with their corporate purpose and, and to decarbonize and as, as a, in the urgent way that, he is, that Larry Fink has, has made uh, claims about in his annual letters? Wouldn't that wouldn't couldn't you make the case that that's what they're doing with their net zero commitment? But it's net zero in how they operate, not net zero in what they are enabling through their very business. 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting. If you look at Enbridge's website, it's like ESG, you know, it's the most ESG friendly website you've seen, you know, in your life, right? It talks about diversity, it talks about like labor, it talks about their net zero commitments, all of this stuff, right? And then if you look at their financial reports, they're still making most of their money in the fossil fuel sector, right? So, you know, what is, and so you can see, I can see an investment strategy that says, hey, we're going to invest in this company as sort of like a best of the worst model that says we're going to pick the companies in these sectors that we think are doing a good job. They, you know, they, there has been shareholder engagement in the past, but the, that's kind of my point. That doesn't detract from the fact that they're building fuel, fossil fuel pipelines, right? It's like saying, you know, well, I'm engaging with a tobacco company, but they're still killing people. At some point, you just have to state the obvious, right? Like these academic discussions over like sort of asset allocation and like, you know, it's like, I don't know, Rio Tinto is not a good company. If you want to have an ESG strategy, don't invest in Rio Tinto, right? Like these are not hard decisions to make. But if, uh, you know, it, it, I think change comes about when people, you know, as the saying goes, either see the light or feel the heat. And so what you're trying to do is to, to bring, um, bring some of these issues to, to, to light um, and so to perhaps then uh, have these companies and these investors kind of feel the heat, so to speak. Because um, as, as you laid out in, in your column, you know, the, the, the government solution is not there right now on shutting down this uh, pipeline infrastructure. The judicial uh, solution is not quite there to shut down this uh, infrastructure. The activists are there um, trying to bring attention to it, um, but the, uh, the the likely outcome here is that the pipeline will continue. Um, and this, uh, it, you know, I guess my qu my question to you, Imogen, is: is does that become a bad investment financially? I mean, would would this be a bad investment or is this going to pay off? Because uh, in in the transition to the net zero economy, there's still going to be a need for oil. And, and back to the, the adage, you know, while the music is playing, people should dance. Um, and so who, 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 you know, who's to say that this is a bad investment economically? Well, and that's 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 kind of part of my point as well. You don't it could well be a good investment. Right. Especially if. On the equity side, right, long term, Enridge is an owner and an operator, so it makes it a bit more of a challenge. But definitely on the debt side, right, if you're just paying to build these pipelines and you don't actually care, like you don't have a 15-year economic interest in them, you have, let's say, a five-year economic interest or whatever to get them built, it very well could be a good investment for you. And that's one of the reasons that you see so many of these institutional investors in this space, because historically it has been a good investment. So they want to keep the dance going as long as possible and they think that's their job and that's their responsibility and kind of the argument i'm making is you've got to step up a little bit more than that you have to recognize that you have to yes it's you have to make some decisions to leave some money on the table and do other things you can't just wait until you know it's like oh i'm not going to invest in coal anymore because clearly that's a terrible investment right like you have to be more proactive in your choices instead of assuming that it's someone else's responsibility to step up and make those decisions. 
So who's going to who's going to uh, either turn off the music or switch the music to the renewable energy music uh, that we want to be dancing to? Is it, where where does that change come about? Does it come about through activists putting pressure on the investors to change their asset allocation decisions about what companies they invest in, or does that come about through uh, you know judicial activism and 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 legal recourse, or does it come about through policy change? Wait, 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 everyone's waiting for someone else to be the one to change the music. And my point is, is if you're an allocator and you believe that climate change is in fact, you know, economic crisis, why wouldn't you change the music? Why continue to dance to the same tune? Like, I don't care if the party's going to go on for another six months. Like, move on to the next party. It comes down to long term. I mean, you you sort of you sort of framed it up uh, well, Imogen, in, in that it depends on how long your investment you know needs to to, to run. And um, you know, some people think when people think think long term, they think like you know three months or something. Um, you know, day for a day trader, that's kind of long term. But I mean, if we're talking in in ten, thir- you know, thirty, fifty year increments, you know, it's 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 unlikely that there's any way this is. Uh, you know, a good investment. I mean, I don't know whether we think we're going to be pumping tar sands oil in 2051. But um, in any event, that horizon could be made quite a bit shorter, as you say, by by some, you know, political leadership and regulatory uh, crackdown. And that's what, you know, that's what we I think we need to see at this point. All right. Well, that sounds like a good place to, to wrap it up here. Uh, we're curious to hear your thoughts. So if you have a solution to who should be turning off the music, or at least changing the music to the renewable energy uh, dance to track, uh, d- definitely drop us a line, editor at impactalpha.com. But that's going to do it for our conversation. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Brian. And thank you, Imogen. Thank you, Brian. And thank you, David, as well. More all day at impactalpha.com. Subscribe to get full access to the site and the daily brief. Podcast listeners get $100 off your first year subscription. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code briefing100. Thank you for listening. And thanks, as always, to our producer extraordinaire, Isaac Silk. I'm Brian Walsh, head of sustainability for the capital markets firm TPI Cap. Until next time, take good care.